I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is Please Go On, a new weekly podcast that spotlights an important op-ed and then goes deeper. This week, we're joined by Interior Secretary Deb Holland. She was confirmed in March as the first Native American cabinet secretary in U.S. history. The yeas are 51, the nays are 40, the nomination is confirmed. President Biden placed Holland at the helm of a 172-year-old institution that has often had a fraught relationship with the nation's 574 federally recognized tribes. Well, this is our land. This is our ancestral homeland, and we will protect it at all costs. Holland, a member of the Laguna Pueblo, has an extraordinary personal story. Born to a Native American mother who served in the Navy, and a Norwegian-American father who served in the Marines. She bounced between 13 public schools as the family changed military bases. Eventually, she attended law school with the help of student loans and food stamps. Occasionally, as a single mother, she experienced homelessness. After representing the Albuquerque area in Congress, Holland now oversees a department that manages one-fifth of all U.S. land. This puts her at the center of a lot of high-profile conflicts over issues like oil drilling or protecting endangered species. But some news out of Canada late last month stopped her in her tracks. It was a developing story out of British Columbia. A First Nation says the remains of more than 200 children have been located, buried on the site of a former residential school, in fact, the largest residential school in the entire national network from the time. Then, on Thursday, another Canadian Indigenous group announced the discovery of the remains of 751 more people at the site of a former Indigenous school in Saskatchewan. From 1883 until 1996, nearly 150,000 Indigenous children in Canada were separated from their families, often by force, and sent to government-funded, church-run schools in an attempt to assimilate them. The story has been extensively covered by the Canadian Broadcasting Company, which has interviewed lots of survivors. I remember them taking me away from my mother and uh, my stepfather. And uh, I can hear them telling my mom that uh, that was the best thing for me. Deb Holland wants Americans to know that deaths of Indigenous children at the hands of government were not limited to that side of the border. She wrote in an op-ed for The Post last week that over nearly a hundred years, tens of thousands of indigenous children here in the United States were also taken from their communities and forced into boarding schools run by religious institutions and the U.S. government. Some studies suggest that by 1926, nearly 83% of Native American school-aged children were in the system. Many children were doused with DDT upon arrival. And as their coerced re-education got underway, they endured physical abuse for speaking their tribal language or practicing traditions that didn't fit into what our government believed was the American ideal. This week, Secretary Holland used her considerable authority to order a full accounting of these schools and their legacy. Here is our conversation. 
I'd like to start by talking about that unmarked burial site discovered in British Columbia at the Kamloops Indian Residential School with the remains of 215 children. In a speech to tribal leaders, you said you wept with your team when you heard the news. Oh, absolutely. Well, of course, we all immediately think of our own ancestors, right? Our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents who who were taken away to boarding school and um, and that could have been them, right? It could have been them. I mean, I imagine, I am so grateful. My grandmother lived to be almost 100 years old, and I had her for so long teaching me things. And in a moment like that, you think about what if my grandmother hadn't been there all of my life, right? It's, it's a very profound kind of, you know, thought. And, um, but all those children, you know, they have families who loved them and cared about them and and wondered what happened to them. And some family members themselves passed away not knowing where those children had gone. You wrote in the op-ed that you spent time with your grandmother in a writing assignment in college. And that was the first time you heard her speak about how hard it was, about the priest gathering the children from the village and putting them on a train and these years that she missed her family. Can you talk a little bit more about those conversations with your grandma? And was that the first time you really learned the extent of this this horrible program? Or had you kind of known a little bit about it? And Yes, no, we knew a little bit about it because my mom had mentioned it to us. Um, and of course, I knew about the history of, of the, you know, the Catholic Church and the Pueblo uh, communities. Um, they, you know, they worked to Catholicize all of the Pueblo Indians. They had an advantage because we lived in villages together that were made from stone and, and adobe. So they were, they were, um, ho- you know, they weren't moving with the seasons. We stayed in one place year round. We were agriculturalists, so stayed close to our fields. And so because we had that um, sort of sedentary life way, it was easy for them to come in and build churches using slave labor. Uh, it was easy for them to come in and, and build those mission churches and uh, be a permanent part of our communities. And so, I mean, I know I had known, you know, that history. Uh, my mom had spoken about it, but uh, that day in my grandmother's kitchen, when I was speaking with her, I asked, you know, I asked her, "How did that come about?" And she said, "The father came around knocking on all the doors and um, gathering the children in the village, and he put us on a train." Jeez. She was taken away from when she was eight to 13. Is that? Yes, five years she was gone. I asked her um, if anyone visited her. Her dad had only a horse and wagon. Mm-hmm. And so he was only able to visit her twice during those five years that she was gone. And he had to take his horse and wagon all the way to Santa Fe from Mesita Village at the Laguna Pueblo, which was probably well over 100 miles. I mean, you can imagine that was, that was a hardship in yeah. one, with one horse and a wagon. Um, and so uh, she only saw her dad twice during those five years. You talked about the intergenerational impact of this. How do you think it affected her? Those are such formative years, eight-year-old to 13-year-old girl. Can you talk about how it affected her and how it affected the, the tribe and the community? Right. Well, I mean, we're fortunate that she she was, you know, when she I asked her about that when she when she came home, what happened? Her dad, he herded sheep 
we're all farmers in in our in our Pueblo uh, traditions. We're traditional agriculturalists, and so her dad uh, farmed, but he also had sheep, and that was her job to herd the sheep. So she she just fell right back in with the work that her you know helping her parents to grow the food and and do what they needed to do, and uh, so she got right back into it. But what's, you know, what, stri- what struck me about some of those conversations is that when she went to school, I would ask her, you know, what, what was a regular day like? And it was, it was mostly cleaning, right? She cleaned the church, and they ironed and washed clothes and peeled potatoes, and um, it, it wasn't like they were taking the children away to teach them or to prep them, you know, for an academic life or to enrich their lives by learning, uh, you know, Shakespeare or whatever. Um, it, it was pure and simple teaching them how to be domestic servants. Yeah. And your great-grandfather was also taken to the Carlisle Indian School in Pennsylvania. Its founder famously coined the phrase, kill the Indian and save the man, which sadly was not some kind of outlier. That was the mentality. Have there been stories passed down from, you know, his experience and, and others besides your grandmother that you have subsequently heard? You know, I asked her about, I asked her in detail about him and she didn't really, um, she didn't really like either she didn't remember a lot or he didn't tell her a lot. So I didn't learn a whole lot from her about that. But, um, uh, you know, I visited Carlisle Indian School when I was a member of Congress. And um, there was a Native community there in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, who who has worked incredibly hard to keep the memory of those children alive. And uh, they've delved in, into a lot of the history. It's important to them. Uh, and so I, I was able to, to tour a little museum they have and, and actually learn some of what they're doing there. And you know, I guess that maybe that captures in miniature a little bit of what you're trying to now do at, at the federal level. You just announced to the National Congress of American Indians that the Interior Department will launch this federal Indian boarding school initiative. You said it will identify past boarding school facilities and sites, the location of known and possible burial sites, and the identities and tribal affiliations of children who were taken there with a report to be delivered to you by April of next year. Can you talk about how this came together? What What are you expecting this this commission will find and, and lead to? Going back to the 215 children who uh, were found in unmarked graves, imagine how long and hard their family members looked for them or wanted answers or went to the school to find out, right? I mean, the same is here. There are many children who never came home. And no one knows what happened to them. I know individual Native people have worked to find information on their ancestors to no avail. We want people to get the information that they need. Everyone deserves to know what happened to their family members. And what I said in my op-ed was that we want our we want those children home, regardless of how long it's been. I mean, for us, you know, we have certain ceremonies and traditions attached when one of our loved one passes. And to not be able to perform those 
uh, ceremonies, it's an uneasy feeling. It's it, it would be, you know, tragic in a way to not give that individual what they deserve as they pass on. Are there reasons to believe that mass burial sites like the one in British Columbia will be discovered here in the United States? Yeah, I mean, I can't even, I, I can't answer that question. I, I don't have a, a real clue about that. But I mean, of course, we'll work, hopefully with a lot of cooperation and we'll get this underway. And of course, we'll learn as we move forward with it. Why do you think that the U.S. is behind Canada on this? Tribes there have been doing these searches with government support. Why do you think we're kind of playing catch up with the Canadians? Well, I can't necessarily answer that. This is an issue that's been um, important to a lot of people for a long time. And I think I think the important thing is that we are we're doing it now. I think I think it's I have to say that with respect to the leadership we have in the White House now, President Biden is is wholeheartedly he wants robust consultation with Indian tribes. He wants Indian tribes to have a seat at the table. He believes in us, you know, having an all-of-government approach that we all need to work together to move our country forward. And I I feel very strongly that his courageous leadership is is something that we've needed, and I'm grateful for that. There was a Truth and Reconciliation report that was released by the Canadian government back in 2015, and it was about their Indian residential schools. And it said that they were a, a, quote, key component of cultural genocide. Do you anticipate some big report like what we saw from Canada? Or how do you see this playing out? I mean, we just want to give the public an opportunity to know and understand. They deserve to know what happened to the people that they love, their ancestors who were lost, We want to give some, you know, some hard data, if you will. These are the places where they were. Uh, This is what we found. And, you know, hopefully be able to document, you know, names and tribal affiliations, as we mentioned, so that they have that opportunity. I almost don't know where the process will lead us, quite frankly, but I can assure you that we are dedicated also to tribal consultation on this issue. We are going to make sure that we involve tribes and all that we're doing so that they can have a say. And I mean, quite frankly, there are organizations currently who have dedicated so much time and effort to this issue. Mm -hmm. Um, They care deeply about um, this issue. The generational trauma is real. And we deserve to have some closure, if you will, right? We deserve to have answers to these longstanding questions so that folks can begin to rest a little bit easier at night. Totally. Do you agree with that, the phrase that the, that Canadian report used, cultural genocide? Do you see this as cultural genocide? I mean, it was real genocide. It was, you know, for the colonization of this country, uh, it came at a tremendous cost and um, we have something like, you know, 95% of our population was wiped out either by disease or by gunshot or, you know, however they murdered people. And so we have we have suffered a tremendous amount. And when I think about, you know, sometimes I get asked the question, why are Native Americans so 
eager to join the armed forces? Why do we have a larger ratio of American Indians in our military than any other group of people? Uh, it's very simple. This is our land. This is our ancestral homeland, and we will protect it at all costs. And so when I think about the idea of genocide, it happened in many ways, right? It, mm -hmm. I mean, think about, um, you know, uh, when the westward expansion started, um, you know, the killing off of the buffalo, sometimes a thousand in one day by one person, they would kill uh, buffalo to starve the Indians. They didn't want Indians to have food. The sooner they starved to death, the better it was for folks moving out west. I mean, there were so many ways that they manipulated our wildlife, our environment, the boarding school policies, the assimilation policies, right? Like moving folks away from their reservations and their Indian communities to go work in the cities, things like that. That was sort of like a la last ditch effort because they couldn't kill us all off in the beginning. So it was sort of like, well, let's just assimilate them into mainstream society and they'll just blend in with everyone and we won't have to worry about them anymore. Um, and all those things failed. All those things failed because uh, we are still here. We still have distinct cultures. We, we have been able to save our languages in so many instances and in so many ways. Our tribes are thriving, and I, I am grateful for that. When I think about the effort that my ancestors put into surviving uh, against the elements, then against colonization, and then against all the other things, um, I am here. I have an obligation to honor their sacrifices, and you can absolutely bet that that's what I will do. I totally understand. You don't know where this process goes. Obviously, we need to see the results of the investigation, which you just launched. But we do know these kids were separated from their families and confined against their will on account of the U.S. government. In fact, there are living survivors of these facilities. Do you think we should have a conversation about reparations? Of course, I can't speak for the White House. I feel like if there's an issue such as that, Congress is an entity that would need to, I think, take that issue up as well. Uh, Native Americans, of course, have a different relationship with the right. federal government than other folks do. The United States has a trust responsibility to Indian tribes. This was our land. I mean, we were all here on this continent thriving for a millennia. And then in order to take our land, they had to sign treaties. Uh, they had to pass, uh, met, you know, acts of Congress and sign executive orders to get us to give up our land. And in exchange for that land, they said, we're going to do, we're going to make sure you have health care, education, housing, uh, you know, law enforcement. It, it's all these things, right? So we, so the United States has a trust responsibility to Indian tribes. Uh, and of course, as Secretary of the Interior, it's my job to make sure that we uphold those trust responsibilities. As you note, the Interior Department continues to be incredibly important for the 1.9 million Native Americans. Three divisions of your department are especially significant for Indian country, including the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the Bureau of Trust Funds Administration, and the Bureau of Indian Education. And on that one, I think most people don't realize that your department continues to operate residential boarding schools, but 
these aren't at all like the ones your grandma and great-grandfather were forced to attend. Can you talk about how they're different? Absolutely. And so imagine, you know, going to a boarding school back in the early 1900s, and every time you spoke your native language, they would hit you with something and, you know, sort of beat the native language out of you. Um, Today, native languages are encouraged. Uh, Traditional learning is encouraged. Academics is a very uh, important part of these boarding schools. We want to make sure that we are preparing children for the future, mm. and um, and and it's voluntary. <laughs> the parents, you know, <laughs> the kids want to go; they can go. Sometimes uh, they want to go to boarding school, and and so I, I, you know, it's our job. Of course, we want to just make sure that we're doing our best. Every child in this country, every child. Whether you're native, whether you're not native, you know, wherever you are, every single child in this country deserves a quality education, a quality public education. Uh, We want to make that happen in Indian boarding schools um, and, of course, make sure that children can maintain their tribal identities. Well, Secretary Holland, thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk about these important issues. Thank you as well. I I appreciate you inviting me here today. What we just heard from the Interior Secretary represents a remarkable departure from the often sordid history of the department she leads. Times have changed, even compared to the not-distant past. When Holland was in Congress, she repeatedly clashed with both of Donald Trump's Interior Secretaries. Just a few years ago, she was leading protests against oil pipelines. Now she oversees federal public lands. In 1972, several hundred tribal activists took over and occupied the Interior Department headquarters here in Washington to draw attention to their plight and mistreatment. But nothing immediately changed. In 1983, then Interior Secretary James Watt blamed the problems on U.S. reservations on indigenous culture. He said during a radio interview, quote, if you want an example of the failure of socialism, don't go to Russia, come to America and go to the Indian reservations. All of that, and there are many more examples, helps explain why this reckoning over these residential schools has been put off until now. As Holland said, we don't know what this new commission will find and where that may lead. But finally, at the very least, there will be an official accounting of what was done in the name of the American government. Please Go On is produced by Julie Deppenbrock with editing from Michael Duffy and Allison Michaels. Our theme music is composed by Ted Muldoon. You can listen and follow us on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Because we're new, it really is especially helpful if you can give us a good rating and positive review. If you want to read Secretary Holland's op-ed, you can find the link in our show notes. I'm James Holman, and I'll be back next Friday with another edition of Please Go On, because there's always more to say. <laughs>